0: This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com African Tech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Besides being the founder and CEO of enterprise application solutions company Appstech, Cameroonian born Rebecca Enonchong is also a trusted advisor in matters of tech and innovation to many of Africa's most influential brands and businesses. Rebecca's technical and leadership track record at the highest level has led to her being widely considered one of the most credible ambassadors for Africa's burgeoning tech scene. When she's not flying between Douala and Washington, DC on AppStech business, Rebecca maintains a busy speaking schedule that takes her all over the world, and she serves on several boards for the likes of the African Business Angel Network and VC for Africa. This is African Tech Conversations. Hi Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this, talking to me. Glad to be doing it again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Not as excited as we are to be sure. Okay, firstly, what is your favorite holiday?
1: My favorite like a holiday, like the day off holiday.
0: Probably a holiday where you'd get to see your friends and family. It can be something like Christmas or Easter or
1: It's Thanksgiving, which is a very American holiday. But I like it because it's all about food.
0: And so think back to uh, a Thanksgiving from your childhood, your very favorite one. Do you have one in your head yet?
1: Um, I think it's probably the first one I ever had in the U.S. I was probably about 15 years old. All of my mother's side of the family, about 25 people, ended up together um, sharing food and thanking God for everything he'd given us during the year.
0: Do you remember what you were wearing, Where it happened exactly, whose house you were at?
1: It happened in North Carolina, and it happened, uh, I don't know what I was wearing, but at that point, I had a uniform, which was jeans and t-shirts, so that's probably what I was wearing.
0: Tell me a little bit about what it was like being a teenager in North Carolina. Your siblings, your parents, do you come from a strict home? Did you get along with your brothers and sisters, if you have any?
1: Well, I have 11 brothers and sisters that I know of.
0: Also a pretty stupid question at this point. But yeah. OK, so tell me a little bit about them.
1: My father was was an African chief. He passed away a few years ago. Yeah. My my family is very dispersed in terms of age groups. We go from, you know, the oldest one is in her 50s. The youngest is in his early, very like turned 30. And yeah, so it's it's a very eclectic family. Um Different nationalities, and at that point i 'm going back to North Carolina. It was the u s side of my family that was there, so my father was not there my My siblings weren't there, but my cousins, who are like my brothers and sisters uh my american brother my American cousins were there um, We were in the middle of the forest where my uncle lived, and yeah, it was peaceful, it was all about love, all about sharing, all about food, and thanking you know thanksgiving.
0: Tell me about the years leading up to that Thanksgiving. How did you end up in North Carolina? I, I am assuming, being half Cameroonian, you must have lived part of your life in Cameroon and eventually made your way to the U.S. Am I correct?
1: Yes. Actually, I was born and raised in Cameroon, and I went to the U.S. as a teenager. So I had just arrived in the U.S. when I had that Thanksgiving. Um, and it was a very big change for me. Um, because in a good way? It, well, in, it was just different. It was different because I had grown up in Cameroon very privileged, I would say. Uh, My father was a lawyer. Uh, My mother being an American. You know, you you kind of, you you know, you go to the, I went to the French school. My friends were from, you know, nice families. And when you come to the U.S., it's a totally different thing. And it was beautiful. It's the best thing that ever happened to me because they didn't care that my last name was Ananshan. They didn't care. You know, it, nobody cares who, what your background is and what all that other stuff is. It's all about who you are, the core of who, who you are um, as a human being. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that I had to, I, I moved to the U.S. at that time.
0: And what does being in on Chong mean? Or what did it mean up till that point, till the great leveling exercise of moving abroad?
1: Well, uh, my father was a very successful lawyer and businessman. And um, so I don't even know that I realized how much I was in a world of privilege. But, you know, you, ha- you you live in this beautiful home and you have so many, all these servants and you're driven, you know, in a chauffeured uh, uh, Mercedes to your school. And you don't really know what privilege is because you're living it. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what, and also my father, because he was the first Cameroonian lawyer in Douala, with Douala is the economic capital. Um, before that, there were only French people. And so he had instilled in us a sense of, you know, we're, nobody's better than us. So we're at at least as good as everybody else. And maybe a sense of superiority uh, that was not, um, yeah, that, you know, when you're a teenager, you're not superior to anybody. And I think that, that coming to the U.S. under very difficult circumstances um, was a reminder of what's important in life. You know, it's, it's hard work, it's dedication. I had to start working. So I went from a life of having everybody take care of everything for me to moving to the U.S. in a two-bedroom apartment with nothing. We didn't even have a television and i started i started working my first full-time job i was 15 years old it was the best job ever it was the best experience ever i wouldn't give it up for anything i had to go door to door selling newspaper subscriptions and i had so many doors slammed in my face because people didn't want to talk to this little african chick right (laughs) um and in my mind, I'm like, okay, this door slammed in my face. But the next door, that's where my customer is. And I only got paid for people that signed. If they didn't sign up for the subscription, I didn't get paid. And I was the top here at 15 years old. I was the the top seller um, in the team. My boss ended up promoting me. I was a trading manager by the time I was 17. Um, the the manager by the time I was 18, and all this while I was still in high school.
0: Okay, and this, uh, I'm assuming when you arrived in America, you couldn't even speak English, so your transition, oh, I suppose the international school maybe?
1: Yeah, well, I I did speak English because my father's from the English-speaking side of Cameroon, and my mother's American, so I spoke English at home, although I couldn't spell for anything, and I'd never had to write anything in English, Um, and uh, in the, the U.S. public school system. And I came from a, a very Jesuit school, like the top school in Cameroon. And I'm thrown into the public school system in, the, in America. And I, I, It's like the difference is just incredible. But they give you a like a, a multiple choice test in order to get into the school. And multiple, multiple choice, I could pick out stuff really easily. And they placed me in honors in the honors program, and so I was in honors English. I had the best teachers, the smallest classes. I was surrounded by geeks and nerds, and, you know, I think that really contributed to the person I am today.
0: My next question was going to be, which part of your educational experience, um, preschool, primary school, um, middle school, high school, velocity, which part of it would have contributed to the career you now enjoy today? Would you have said, but have you sort of answered that question?
1: Yeah, well, no, because I, I would have said that that, that Jesuit education, the discipline, the, the really that discipline, that is part of it. You know, and then, um, you know, that, that to, till today I'm a very disciplined person. And I think it's really important, whatever you're trying to do in life to be disciplined. And I think that that helped um, but the U.S. helped me to master y- my independence, you know, because it's a, there's no rules there. there no, they're not strict. And so you're going from a very strict Jesuit education to um, if you don't come to class, there's n- not really a penalty other than you're not going to learn. And that, that sense of independence, um, that sense of self w- self-worth, that came from the U.S., um, my high school experience
0: and how much of that happened at home. This sort of strict, very structured, disciplined approach to making your way in the world is that something you would have gotten from your dad, from your mom?
1: My parents were very open-minded. They were so not strict with me. They were strict with some of my siblings that maybe weren't as disciplined. I've always been a dis- i was always a disciplined child. Like I never questioned doing my homework. I would come home, I would do my homework, I would walk to school, I'd come back from school, I would do my homework. I didn't, I didn't have that problem with school. Um, so I was, I was a good student. And um, so I didn't have, the, my parents didn't have that issue with me. And they were always very open. I really didn't grow up with lots of rules and very strict, which is why I like the structured environment. I really liked that Catholic school. You know, I like the Jesuit education because there were rules. And I think kids like structure. Um, and because I didn't have it at home, I found it at
0: school. What did you study at, at, at university and how did you go about deciding what to do? And the follow up question to that would be, did you have the career you now have in mind when you picked out what to study at, at university?
1: OK, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot. That was my dream. And then math was not my best, right and, and and they told I was told, you know you really need to be really, really good in math in order to um, have a successful career as a pilot." And going back, this these were my middle school Cameroon years, and the way we as girls were taught was not the same as what boys were taught. For instance, in our curriculum, the girls had to take sewing and cooking. And the boys took um, photography and architecture. So from the beginning, the way we were taught, and so it wasn't important for me to do math, according to my teachers. So I was, you know, good in history and and geography and all the, what what my father used to refer to as soft sciences. Um, But when I got to the U.S., part of what I did while working was bookkeeping. So all this accounting stuff, I started while I was still in high school. So when I decided to, do, to pursue my university degree, first I wanted to do international relations because I wanted to be a diplomat, maybe travel around the world. And um, I like to travel, and that hasn't changed. Um, but I ended up doing economics because I got a scholarship to do economics at Catholic University. Um, And the idea was that I was going to work for a World Bank or an IMF or something like that. And as structured as I was and disciplined, I had this little rebellious bug because my father was a lawyer. Every single one of my siblings studied law. Even those who didn't become lawyers, so I couldn't study law. I had to do something different. You wouldn't. No, I would not. I refused. Um, and so I ended up doing um, an, ec- ec- an econ program. But I was working full-time uh, while I was in school. And I was working mostly doing finance accounting uh, throughout my, ju- my um, end of high school and beginning of uh, university.
0: At which point does the career we now see the Rebecca I've now met start to come together.
1: Um well I, I put I was doing so like this accounting thing. Um it was like I loved accounting. And I always say I'm a recovering accountant. Um I love accounting because there's always an answer. You know, there's not there is always an answer. You there are a lot of you know it's not like economics where there are theories and maybe this will happen or maybe that will happen. At the end and uh, in accounting you have the answer. Um and I I I liked that. And so I think when I I finished school, I ended up in accounting in um because that's where my experience had been in sales and accounting. As I was growing in this finance world I started using computers in order to do my financial reports. That's how the transition happened. And at one point, uh, I got a job part-time at a a store called Egghead Software, which was one of the early, early computer software stores when computers still came in a package, and you had to buy it in a package. And so I started working in that store, and I was so in love with... I, I fell in love with technology. I just... I would, like, I would buy computers and I would take them apart and put them back together. And as soon as software came out, I had to be the first one to install it. And I just really fell in love with technology and software. And that was a bug that has never left me. And so initially trying to make money off of this because Egghead Software, I didn't make money because everything, my whole paycheck would go to buying the software and, you know, new drives and things like that to put in my computer. And so um, eventually, because of my experience in accounting, there would be small business owners that would walk into the store wanting to know about accounting software. And all the other people in the store would say, oh, we don't know anything about that. Come back when Rebecca's working. She's working on Saturday, blah, blah, blah. And so those small business customers would buy the software from me. And then they would call me and say, C- can you come help us install it? And I would come and help them install it. And, well, can you help, help us configure it? And so I'd help them configure it. And before I knew it, I was doing financial systems. I didn't realize that that's what it was called at the time. And I have a friend of mine who is a Cameronian who had been doing this, but with larger systems, larger accounting systems for his customers, and he moved back to Cameroon and left me his business. So he left me his customers, and so that's what I started doing, and I started consulting with large companies. I I spent uh, two years, for instance, at the Inter-American Development Bank working on a big financial system. It was a $40 million system, Um, and, and so I developed into this financial systems analyst um, learned SQL, then became interested in more. Along the way, there was this one Cameroonian guy uh, who was in the US, uh, Jean Claude Mon- Monayong, who was an Oracle DBA. And he was making a ton of money being an Oracle DBA. And he decided that there was a lot of money to be made, and he wanted to help other Cameroonians become Oracle DBAs. <laughs> and so he had these free classes that he was having. He started in his basement. Before you knew it, there were 500 people on his lawn trying to get into these classes and ended up doing an auditorium and really that's how I learned the word Oracle. And I started on my own because it was too just dis- it was like I like order. And so I started learning on my own, learning with a few other people, learning the software, learning Oracle technology on my own. Um, And it's a long story, but I got hired by Oracle to go around teaching their software. After Oracle, I decided that I should start my own business, which is AppStack. And what... My my expertise at Oracle was in between the Oracle applications, the Oracle Financial Suite, which is called Oracle eBusiness Suite today, and the database. So between the two, there's a technology that's called AppStick, and that's where the name came from because it's a co- combination between applications, and so you're able to understand what the customer's, needs are in terms of applications, the end user and then you also understand the technology and it's a combination of the two. It's the idea behind, behind AppStech.
0: Now give me a sense of how many years what you've just shared spans. I mean from the point you sort of, well you obviously started a, a, your career very early in high school even um, but how many years to to, 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 to this point?
1: Um, well if I was let's say my first assignment project with um, technology as technology was in nineteen ninety seven, at uh, the Inter American Development Bank, which was a tech job, um, and uh, yeah, till today. So I, I started Oracle in 8, in ninety seven, and I'm still in it today.
0: And I know on our sister podcast that you featured on uh, uh, a, a while back uh, with Mark Kaygua. Thanks so much for, for pimping our ship, by the way.
1: Oh, that was so cool. That was so much fun. I really enjoyed that.
0: I really caught a high off that, and now. I, you mentioned there, um, you were obviously at a conference, it was a media conference, media leadership conference. Um, you, you spoke a lot about there, and there were a lot of suits there, a lot of traditional sort of media types there. Um, and tech was at the fore of the of the discussions the whole time. I'm thinking in 97, think back to 97, and your role um, in, in helping this project come, t- come together. I want you to, to sort of compare the level of Uh, strategic input that leadership at that time would have looked to people like you to provide versus say purely just being a technical resource and how has that changed over time?
1: Well you know what Like right before 97 my job I worked for um, an African Saudi billionaire, his name is Mohammed Alamudi and I was handling the finance for his DC office and there is no way talk about what you're a techie or you're a software or you're a finance. You don't even get, a, you're not even seated. You're not a consideration. You're the people that spend money. You're a cost center. You're not really a, a voice. And um, when I started AppStack in 90, 1999, one of the things that was always in my mind, and at the time I was in the U.S., and there was this whole thing that the Indians were doing. Like they were rebuilding their entire country based on technology and i'm like we're not different from the indians why can't we do that and so i got together um, a few other um, diaspora entrepreneurs that were in tech and we created the africa technology forum and the idea was to promote technology and technology entrepreneurship on the african continent and we had such a dream we were such dreamers i'm like one day technology will make a difference in africa and when i look now at where we were then, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's amazing! It's just so incredible because we've gone beyond our dreams. We, we've gone beyond what we ever dreamed of. You know, when we look at the the fact that Africa is number one in mobile money anywhere in the world, we're leading the technology. My goodness, you know, even in 2000, we never dreamt of that. Um, we never dreamt of that. But I have to say that. We, we as APSTEC had always identified, and I think because APSTEC was built with Africans. So most of our staff in the U.S., in France, in Canada, um, where we first started, were Africans from all over the continent. I don't know how, but we, there was a sense that mobile was important. And we created in 2000, so that's 15 years ago, mobile Appstick. And we had developed an entire platform to develop mobile applications before anybody was talking about it. And I think so. there's something innate to the simplicity of using a mobile application, whether and then having to buy a computer that we understood as Africans so many years before You know, our, 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 our American counterparts understood the importance of it.
0: And with the benefit of hindsight, what would you say you guys knew or sensed then that everyone else wasn't onto. Was it simply just being plugged into um, a continent that obviously has very different needs to everywhere else in the world and therefore seeing the world through that lens or were you guys just mavericks of some, of some kind?
1: I think there's a combination because I, I don't really, we weren't thinking technology for Africa. We were just Africans and we're trying to make a buck. And we're trying to be innovative um, and we're trying to define ourselves in our space because, you know, Oracle partners, Oracle providers, enterprise application providers, there's a lot of competition in the United States. And so the first thing we did was to say, okay, um, how do we define ourselves? And we define ourselves by saying that our main customer is a multinational. And how do we simplify the use of applications for a multinational customer? They have t- a staff that travels all over the world. You know, let's build technology that enables these the staff to access the applications, these enterprise applications, while they're on the road. Because I needed that. I was a CEO of a micro multinational. You know, we had offices in multiple countries, three continents, and I needed to be able to access not just email, but to access my enterprise applications, my financial software, my HR software. I needed access to that from overseas. And so we developed applications that allowed our customers to do that.
0: Okay, and we're going to come back to Appstake, and you unpacking a little bit of what you, uh, you know the, the, the thrust and focus of that business is currently. You wear a lot of different hats. Looking at your, your Twitter bio, <laughs> you're obviously a tech a founder yourself, which would you say is the biggest hat you wear currently?
1: Um, Right now, uh, I'm I'm, uh, an enabler for Africa technology. I think that's what best defines me now.
0: And what does that look like practically in terms of how you spend your time?
1: Um, I probably spend 70% of my time on promoting technology in Africa Um, and 30% of my time on my money-making enterprise, which is AppStick.
0: It's essentially what you dreamed of being initially when you wanted to do international relations or study international relations, you actually are a diplomat for the, for the continent in Norway, right? I'm a way, right? I'm
1: a diplomat for the tech community. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to be anyway.
0: Okay, so for the African continent certainly. How much do you, how much of your diplomacy is around representing women in tech?
1: Um, that's part of it. I think that you, you don't represent women in tech just because you're a woman and you're in technology, I think that you have to demonstrate through work. Um, and there, there are a number of projects that I'm involved in to support women in tech. The first one is called Africa IT Women, and it's um, something that started in Cameroon, but that's cross-continental um, today, um, where um, it's not just supporting tech entrepreneurship for women, but any women in IT. And so we have all sorts of projects. One of them, for instance, is training in coding, right? And so we, we launched um, some training. And to f- fund the training, the, the men are invited so they can come to the training and they pay. And it's free for the women. Or we'll, we'll sponsor an event. And, of course, the men want to attend because it's like a really exciting tech events but they have to be sponsored by two women and so two women have to come with each man and those are the types of things on the ground because we are in africa um and even though if you look at this the, the the issues in diversity um in tech in the u.s there is a problem already and so you you when you bring in our african culture um, then it makes it much more difficult. So you have to be very creative in finding ways to bring women in. Um, for instance, I've noticed that in our staff at APSTEC in Cameroon, um, we, we, we transitioned from having mostly men to mostly women. And the same women that were there when it was mostly men, when I see now how much more present they are since they're mostly women, it's unbelievable. Because even without doing it on purpose, the men take over the conversation. The women are just listening. And now that the women are a majority, they're they're making the conversation. And I think those are the types of things that you have to do as a woman in tech. Is is of course I, I'll mentor women in tech first. Like, I don't have much bandwidth. I don't have much time. But, you know, when I'm selecting those those entrepreneurs that I want to mentor, I immediately first choose the women because I know how difficult it is. And I didn't have a mentor, and I wish I had.
0: Wow, that's a beautiful segue into my next question. I know you had a pretty unreal experience with uh, Mauritius' relatively new president, Amina Gurub. You know, tell me about that. I mean, we, we, ch- we had a talk about it the other day. But um, tell me about how... Uh, how, how you guys met, and I know you think the world of her.
1: I do think the world. I'm so excited. You, you, you have no idea. You know, so I'm on the board of AMI, which is the African Media Initiative, and I thank God that I'm on the board of AMI, and I don't really, underst- I, I, I don't really think I understood the importance of it until this event, um, which is the AMLF, which is African Media Leaders Forum, and that's the reason I came to Joburg. But as a board member, we, we were receiving the president of Mauritius. And so first of all, we had one-on-one time or one-on-five-people time versus having to be in a room with a gazillion other people. Um, so I, I, I had an opportunity to interact with her, to, to see her, to experience her firsthand. Um, and she was so open and so simple. And so when I started tweeting about the event, I had to find her Twitter handle. And oh, I was floored. She had already been following me on Twitter. You know, she's a scientist, and I don't know, but I I was I was floored. I was like, if there's anything you could have done to, you know, and she. So that was really exciting to see.
0: And so I suppose this speaks to what you were saying about not being for the cause of women just because you're a woman. I think she embodies everyone who cares about women being a a, a great part of of making Africa work, uh, in in the sense that. She clearly knows a lot. She's clearly worked really hard. Um, she clearly has a passion for her country and the continent and is deserving of the leadership she's acquired. And, and, and that's the type of person you want to be. And I sense you are in, in being a sort of diplomat for the, you know, for the cause of women, as it were, or the cause of women in tech or the cause of diversity.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I was so impressed by her simplicity. She's so smart. I mean, this woman has written a gazillion books, and she's a PhD. She's, she's, um, she's a woman scientist, an African woman scientist, and in our culture, it's not, it's rare, you know. And but she, she's remained humble, which I think is key, because uh, you, you, you lose everything when you lose your humility, and I think that's important as well. Um, but, but I think that that. She's someone that we should all look up to, not because she's president of Mauritius, because, but because of how she's president of Mauritius, the way she conducts herself. Um, I, you know, I don't support supporting women for the sake of that they're women but supporting women because of how they have demonstrated that women are capable sometimes more capable um they don't need to make as much noise as the boys um and yeah it's it's a really impressive i'm i'm i feel very blessed to have met her and i wish her the best of luck yeah it's not easy
0: and now i've met you so there's 1 degree of separation between, between me and uh, <laughs> a leader of a, of a country i feel good about that
1: there's only 1 degree of separation between amina the president of mercus and you
0: absolutely yeah,
1: so you you're like she's like oh my
0: goodness i'm pretty important i'm pre- you are very important well I, i'm curious about cameroon i want you to tell me a little bit about cameroon in a little bit we obviously have a sister podcast the african tech roundups you were on on the podcast we don't talk Enough, I think, about Francophone Africa. We don't know much about it, or at least enough. Firstly, how much time do you spend in Cameroon versus elsewhere in the world?
1: Um, I think I probably spend about forty percent of my time in Cameroon, maybe maybe a little bit less. Um, but I'm very focused on Cameroon because it's where my soul remains, you know. And I think even though it's a, an incredibly difficult environment, so difficult that really they'd rather I'd not be there, it, it's important. It's important because I, I, I believe that um, technology is transformative and I think that we can transform our country and the continent through the use of technology, not alone, but technology is that tool that can make us leapfrog as we've done in mobile um, we can do that in other areas. And I, I think the mobile is proof. Mobile is the proof that we can.
0: We're taking a quick break to remind you of Audible's pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Personally, I recommend The Lean Startup, written and narrated by Eric Reese. It's a great listen. But you can pretty much download any audiobook of your choice for free by trying Audible.com. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. And so unpack difficult for me. Talk me through what the average day looks like for, for someone like you who could quite frankly live anywhere they want in the world. Are you based in Douala?
1: Yes, Douala. I live in Douala.
0: So talk me through the morning ritual, your morning ritual as someone living as a a tech professional, a VC, a a tech startup founder living in Douala.
1: I don't leave my apartment until I'm done with my urgent work, until I've finished my emails. Um, And so I I generally, I wake up pretty early, well, relatively early, Um, but I probably spend three hours at home. I, I don't go into the office until 9.30, 10 o'clock um, because I want to get everything done. I read my news. So I used to always, I mean, I've done this forever and ever and ever. I, I did this before newspapers were online. It's like I would read the newspapers. And then I, I just love to read. I would love to know what's happening, and especially in my industry. And um, so I do that. And then those things that I think are interesting, I'll share. So I'll tweet. So that's my morning, right? So I wake up, have my my hot water and lemon <laughs> and my espresso.
0: And what time is this?
1: Um this is probably 7:30. Yeah, 7:30-ish.
0: And what are the sounds around you? Is are you do you live uh, in the city? Are you are, are you in a suburban area?
1: Yeah, I live in the center of town. I live really smack dab in the middle of town. I live 5 minutes from our office.
0: Is that trendy in Cameroon right now?
1: No, it's not. It's not at all. I mean, I'm like, I, this is my, my rebellion, right? Um, my family has, has real estate in the fancy part of town, but I don't want to live there. I actually li- rent and, um, yeah, live in the, the center of town. I, it, I, I like being close to the office um, because if there's anything, at least I'm not far from the office. And I like being, a, I'm, a city, I'm a city girl.
0: And what's traffic like in Douala?
1: It's terrible. But I live five minutes from the office, so it's not as bad.
0: Cool. So 930, you hit the office. What is it like? Are you trying to get stuff out of the way, things that you know you won't be able to do because you'll be inundated at the office?
1: Yeah, because it's very unpredictable. So what I, I do everything I need, I have to do before I go into the office. because, And I don't answer the phone, right? Like I don't pick up the phone, anything. I have to get my morning done before I confront the world. And the, um, the environment is so difficult that when I get, I don't know what's going to happen. It's a, every day is a new day. You know, every day is, there's surprises, there's unexpected emergencies, um, and and very few of those are technology related. You know, yeah, we have bad internet. The internet sucks. So one of the advantages I have of working from home is that I have two separate internet connections, but I also have my neighbor. <laughs> I'm, my neighbor will never listen to this podcast, so it's okay. I don't know what neighbor it is, but I've hacked into their Wi-Fi. and They have the best Wi-Fi. They've, Are you
0: kidding me right now?
1: Their Wi-Fi is even better than my office Wi-Fi. So, yeah, so I really enjoy, like, I, at least I know I'll have access to the Internet. And there's a power generator in the building, and so at least I'll, I I know I have electricity and yeah so those those that helps <laughs>
0: so if, te- if te- technical issues aren't your biggest challenge when you hit the office or when you finally face the world what is
1: you know so many unexpected things you just don't know like the tax guys will come and they'll shut down your office um or it'll be the imp- uh, the uh, social security people they'll come and shut down your office or it will be that your internet won't work or your electricity won't work or your water won't work and or sometimes all three at the same time yeah i mean you know one of the i was so excited you know, like uh, it, in it, I, as i said we started upstate in 1999 by 2002, we had generated tens of millions of dollars in revenue through international customers. You know, one of our most important customers at the time was in the France Telecom Group. And the French people are not the most tech-friendly people, but they were, and they're not very, you, you, you would be surprised um, that that they would get, give contracts to an African black woman-owned African company. But, you know, there were tricks in there. I didn't really... They didn't really know I. I. it was my company. But we had $10 million worth of work from them. And, you know, and we had... We were working with other telecom providers all over the world. Um, we'd done business in over 27 countries by the time MTN came knocking on our door. And um, MTN South Africa had just... Uh, bought the the license in Cameroon and was trying to improve and wanted to to install an enterprise system and they said okay in 2002 we're going to launch the RFP in 2002 we had just opened our Cameroon office after which was our 7th office in the world and you know our staff there wasn't equipped to respond to an RFP of that um, of that size so we as AppStech u.s answered the rfp we ended up winning after months and months of due diligence in which MTN cameroon had actually flown out to our paris office our u.s office our canada office met with our customers met with our bankers to make sure that we could actually carry out the project and they were satisfied and we ended up signing a contract and um, we had over 20 people working on the project in cameroon from our various offices um, that had flown in and were there for, and stayed there for almost a year. And at the end of the project, um, our MTN counterparts decided they, they just weren't gonna pay.
0: This is shedding some light on your very strong views, on some of the very strong views you shared on the African Tech Roundup regarding MTN's recent fine by the Nigerian Communications Commission, five point two billion US dollars, uh, an extension they've been given to pay it, but uh, no talk of it being reduced just yet. But you felt very strongly that there, there might be a culture problem at MTN, which you seem to you seem to have experienced firsthand.
1: Yeah, I I I have experienced it firsthand, and I, what I found is I, I thought it was limited at first to Cameroon, um, because I'm like, okay, there's no way mtn south africa or the group would put up with something like this this is ridiculous there's a contract uh, we delivered on that contract the the system is being used um why would they just not pay i I hit a brick wall i actually flew to south africa met with some of the executives at the time um, including irene charnley who was on the board both of mtn Group and of MTN Cameroon, they were scandalized not just by the fact that MTN hadn't paid, but you know, and I think this is something that you grapple with here in South Africa. The, there were a lot of racial issues. You know, one of the reasons that we we believe that we weren't paid is because I was the face of the company, and I was told by an MTN executive in Cameroon, not 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 here in South Africa, that for black people we've given you enough money so it didn't mean it didn't it had nothing to do with the contract and i'm like well there's a contract and, and they didn't care and i, I have emails I did, so mtn breached every single every single clause in the contract literally so yeah you know when i heard about what happened with mtn nigeria i wasn't surprised at all because the way mtn has conducted itself throughout the continent is the rules are for the others, and contracts are a guideline, right? Everything is negotiable. You know, I was my, my professional uh, upbringing, should I say. Like, I, I started doing business in the U.S., where a contract is black and white, where at the end, as long as everybody understands that the contract is enforceable, you can always negotiate, but the terms are known, and what I encountered in my dealings with MTN were that for them, the contract was just a piece of paper. And I actually have an email where it says, oh, this is not, th- th- the contract, that's black and white. We're not doing the contract. Let's just discuss. And I'm like, okay. We took seven months to negotiate this document. Lawyers from, from three countries, four countries were involved in drafting it how can you say that it's just, you know, why are you being so black and white? And I'm like, okay, because that's what it says in black and white in the contract. And and, and, and so I so wasn't surprised when MTN was shocked by the fine. They weren't shocked because they didn't know about it. Because we know that in 2011, they signed a contract with the regulatory body that said any member, that, that any subscriber that's not subscribed that's not registered, You're going to pay $1,000. And so they knew that by having 5 million unregistered, 5.2 million unregistered subscribers, that the fine based on the contract would be $5.3 billion. They've known it since 2011. But I think that because that's the culture of the company from, in, in my opinion, they felt that, okay, that's just what's on the piece of paper. We're never going to have to pay that.
0: And do you do you think this is a, a broader issue within multinationals working across the country uh, of the continent? In your experience, it, is this indicative of how business is being done in Cameroon or in Africa in general?
1: Um, you know what 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 struck me in in Africa in general, in Cameroon in particular, was that because I came from this world of win win. Right. So in the U.S., when when you're you enter a business deal, it's for each party to succeed. Everybody gets something out of it. And what I realized very, very, very late is that in Africa and this is not, you know, I shouldn't generalize because each country is a little bit different, but that it's one of us is going to get screwed and it's not going to be me. Right, So when they're entering a business deal, everybody feels like somebody's going to get more out of it than the other. And they arrange it so that they're not the ones that get the end, the bad end of the deal, the raw end of the deal. I didn't expect that. That was really a surprise for me. I'd done business before that time, before signing with MTN South Africa, of the, MTN Cameroon. I'd done business in almost... 50 countries and we'd never encountered that we'd encountered people that were slow in paying but never denied that they owed the money i'd never encountered any i'd never had the experience where they actually came to our office and said what are you going to do about it we're mtn you're tiny you'll never win in this country um just let it go And I'm like, okay, it's $3 million. I can't let it go. I mean, the viability of my company depends on you paying your bill.
0: Please tell me the story ends well.
1: I'm still waiting to get paid. But we did win in court. We did, um, There's, you know, we do have a final judgment against MTN. And we've had it since 2005 um, for $2.6 million um, that we have not been able to enforce. So, you know, MTN now is contending that, okay, so in addition to the lawsuit, we had to file. And we had to file it because MTN didn't give us any choice. I don't like suing customers, and I've never had to sue customers in the past. This was a first for the entire company.
0: And it happens on home soil. How sad.
1: Oh, and you know, it's, it's, it was, I, I feel like we're a microcosm of everything that can go wrong. In a company that's trying to go back to the continent, you know, I, I I I had a presentation. There was a World Bank event a few months ago on diaspora investing it back in in Africa, and I warned my diaspora entrepreneurs that what you think you know about Africa, you don't. You know, I I had been I I grew up in I was born I grew up in Cameroon. I went back to Cameroon on a very frequent basis um, and on vacation when I was younger and for business when I was a little older. I thought I knew the country and I really prepared to enter the market. I mean, we did market studies. We hired people to run the organization that had experience. Um, There's actually a a white paper paper. Um, it was a thesis from Columbia University students in New York that followed me for months um, and um, wrote their, their final MBA thesis on me entering the Cameron market. And so there, you can see that there was thought that went into going into the market. And what's interesting is when I go back and read that white paper, which is still on the Internet somewhere, I realized that I, I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I had no clue. I had no idea what I was going into. um, And I was so excited to work with a South African company. You know, when we signed with MTN, we were like, oh, my God, this is a dream come true. Right. Black empowerment. I mean, they made me answer all these questions on the RFP. We had to answer all these BEE questions like how many. And I was like so proud. And seeing afterwards how they treated us as less than human beings i was i was I was really, really disappointed, and you know it goes back to a conversation we had on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago about what was happening in South Africa in the tech industry where a very popular and uh, a publication that I really like a lot and I'm always on uh, did a top ten of something in South Africa, and each one of those entrepreneurs was a white m- male and you know it was that sense of there are two Africans that we experienced it firsthand in 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 Cameroon, and we we, we, we there were so many racial incidents that one of our staff that was in Cameroon um, working on the project uh, chartered accountant cpa oracle certified um, had worked on many many projects for us in 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 the u s um, and in France, um, she sent me an email, and she was she said, Now I understand why Mandela worked so hard, and I was in tears because we, no one should should be subjected to what we were subjected to um, in that environment. no one should live what we lived through in that environment, and you know the fact that each and every one of the contract provisions Were breached by MTN. And all we ever asked for is, okay, the only one we're interested in is just pay us. You know, just just walk away from this. Just pay us for the work we did. And they didn't feel like we deserved it. You know, they felt like we're black people.
0: What's the biggest lesson you've taken away from that experience? And how has it made your business that much better?
1: Because things have changed. You know, I've seen even MTN Cameroon change in the last 10 years. Um, the, the, the type of staff that they have, it, they have is not, you know, there are a lot more Cameroonians in positions of responsibility. Um, the current executive is a, a black South African woman, um, which is fantastic. I haven't met her yet, but I applaud that, you know, and I think that's progress. And I wouldn't want anybody to carry my burden into how they view... Investing in Africa, investing in Cameroon. I think that, you know, part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur is not knowing, is is being willing to th- like, you know, you look at the world through rose-colored glasses, and I think that's a positive thing. It's not good to overthink. It's not good to know too much. Um, and I think I'm at a disadvantage because I know, right? So I think if I hadn't gone through, if I hadn't experienced what I experienced, maybe I would be further ahead. Because I'm less willing to take a risk because of the pain. You know, we almost lost our entire co- company as a result of this. You know, we went from seven offices to two offices. We lost 80% of our staff. We had to let go. Um, and, you know, we're, we're rebuilding. But it's we're not rebuilding in the way that I would have rebuilt if I had the mindset that I had when I started this company, which was... I, I was a, I, I, I just I saw everything as positive, you know, and I'm a little bit afraid. And so that's why I like surrounding myself with these these really new young technology entrepreneurs that still look at the world the way I used to look at it. Because they're the they're they're how we as Africans are going to succeed. It's not because of me. And it won't be because MTN wakes up one day and says, oh, okay, we were wrong. It's because, you know, despite the reality we still dream and we still get up early in the morning and we still build and we still innovate and we still believe that tomorrow will be better than today.
0: But there's this niggling paranoia which colors everything. Oh, that probably wasn't there before this event. And I I know I've heard a lot of um, uh, leaders or investors, VC types talk about how they look for a healthy dose of paranoia in the tech founders that they invest in. (laughs) Is that something you look for now, given um, your your VC interests and and the angel investment, uh, uh, your passion for angel investment?
1: No, I don't want you to be paranoid because I want you to break all the rules. I want you to break the ceilings. I want you to go beyond what's dreamed, I want you to take your dream and go way beyond what anybody would expect of you. And so if you know too much, if you're too realistic, then you, you won't succeed. You know, like the MBA types that like, give you these, these big business plans with lots of charts and graphs, they are not going to make it.
0: So, these, make- the, so the, MBA, <laughs> the MBA is listening to us right now going, oh my word, better pitch someone else.
1: Yeah, yeah they'll make it working for a company. 'll work they 'll make it working for a CEO, but i don 't know that they 'll make it as a CEO You almost have to be reckless to be a CEO to be a founder. You know it was uh, funny a few months ago a few years ago there was a conference on africa and and uh, on entrepreneurship, and somebody said, "Well, you have to be crazy to be on an entrepreneur and I agree with that, but i 'm like you have to be raising mad to be an African entrepreneur and I think that 's important you know I, I think that that you don't create out of, no, out of knowledge. You, you create out of nothing. And that nothingness and that, that pureness of your spirit, that's what builds innovation. And that's what will create the Facebook of tomorrow. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I can make more. I can be the Facebook of Africa. No, it's like there's this blank space. And I don't know any better than to think that my idea is going to be the next billion-dollar idea. And that's what's going to make us grow. And that's what I'm looking for in an entrepreneur.
0: So, yeah. So let's talk about this angel investment thing. And and are you more a proponent for for, for the scene? Um, how, how dirty are your hands as far as that's concerned? How actively are you looking for the next uh, new thing? I, you mentioned... Uh, having a particular heart for women in the, in the tech scene and, and as founders, as I'd, I'd imagine?
1: Um, well, I've been involved in uh, VC for Africa, which is a platform. It's a technology platform that brings together entrepreneurs and investors, but I'd never myself been an investor. Um, I was more in the tech hub environment as was, I'm a founder of Active Spaces, which is the African Center for Technology, Innovation, and Ventures, uh, which is really a tech hub. And we, we have two locations, one in Boya, one in Douala to enable tech entrepreneurs, you know, to take their idea and uh, make it a business and transform, give them the skills they need to become business people. Um, and, and so that's where my focus has been. But, you know, at one point, we need to develop the ecosystem. And the ecosystem, you know, we went from five or six uh, tech hubs in five, six years ago to over 100 today over the across the continent and so that was that's an evolution that's important but now these entrepreneurs somebody has to give them their first money you know that, that whole thing about um friends families and fools and that works in the west isn't very adapted to our situation in africa because you know there is no basement or garage to start an, a business in Many of our entrepreneurs are first-time university students. You know, some of them haven't gone through because they couldn't afford to. Um, and so we can't, they don't have, they can't rely on the same amount of funding they may be able to get there from their families. Their families that funded their education are looking to them to give them money to finance the next person's education in their family. So I thought it was time for us to put our money where our mouth was. And to say, okay, if we so believe in technology entrepreneurship in Africa, how are we making that happen through our by sacrificing our own money? And um, some friends of of mine and I got together in Cameroon and we created Cameroon Angels Network to invest in our entrepreneurs. And um, so we have a first round, so to speak, that just came out. We had we did a pitch competition um, at the end of last year. And we're putting the the entrepreneurs through a program, through Active Spaces, in partnership with Active Spaces. And when they graduate, um, uh, quotation marks, from that program, they'll get the funding. Um, But they have to graduate from that. And not everybody that was selected will. So that's an interesting bit. But they have to have the tools to be business people, be not just the technology, but I'm so excited about that environment. And so that was the first step. And in that, um, there were some of us that were invited to an to angel um, event organized by the European Business Angels in Helsinki uh, last year. And we're African angel investors. And we looked at each other and we're like, why are we at the European Business Angels Network? Where's the African Business Angels Network? And we sat there and we created the African Business Angels Network. And that's how that came about. And I'm so excited about that because it's taken on its own personality. It's it's done so well. Um, there's so much interest now in angel investing across the African continent. We've actually c- uh, created some training. And so we did uh, a session in uh, Nairobi, one in Cape Town, and one in uh, Lagos. Which is, I, I would say, the most mature angel invest African in angel investment community is in Lagos, um, and so we did the training t- because a lot of people want to know want to invest in these startups. Th- they don't know how, and so we provided training to um, potential investors, and what really we're, we're just promoting the idea. You know, the African investor people that have that are wealthy don't often think about investing in startups and we're, we're showing them the way and we're leading the way because we're putting our money in and we're saying come join us.
0: Wow and uh, m- my question to you given all that is uh, you know the foreign VC interests that have landed in Africa say in 20 you know in this year this year alone I think of the likes of Nest uh, VC what's your take on that are they really here for business or is Africa one big pet project to them what sort of advantage do you have being homegrown and with the networks you're plugged into?
1: Um, You know what? I am so glad that they're coming because that's validating, right? So that type of quality money, and I say quality money because Ness is a quality organization um, and there are a lot of these quality 500 startups, quality organizations now coming and looking at Africa as a real investment opportunity. They don't always put the money, they don't always write the checks because sometimes we're not ready for those checks, right? Sometimes our startups aren't ready for those checks. But I I, I think it's a great sign. And I think that when our own um, investors start seeing foreign investors coming and investing in those startups, they're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Maybe that young kid that came to talk to me last year about his startup, maybe he's onto something. And so if... Unfortunately, I wish it were the other way around. Was that there was so much investment coming locally that foreign investors were like, "Oh my God, there's something going on." But if it's the other way around, foreign investors are coming and investing, and the local investors like, "Okay, what's going on? I want to be a part of it." Then that works for me. You know, it it, whatever works (laughs) at this point. But it's um,
0: you're basically batting for you're, you're you're rooting for the ecosystem. Anything that will be good for the ecosystem, you're you're with.
1: Yeah, that's really what we're doing. I, I don't think that any of us angel investors, other than the Nigerians, man. I love the Nigerians because they're all about the money. They're all about the cash. But I think those of us in other countries are more, right now, trying to strengthen the ecosystem, Hoping that we'll have at least one of the startups that will make enough money that we can continue to invest and we're not going to lose our shirts and it will be validating not just for startups but also for the investors and I always tell my startups whether the ones I invest in or the ones that I just mentor that investment is not charity. And you know, th- I th- I think there, there in that area there are really three Africans. What I've seen in in kind of observing the the tech community in Africa, like South Africa, I see real innovation, real innovation. There's there, there's technology that comes up out, f- out of South Africa that I haven't seen anywhere else, and that technology is what foreign investors you've you've seen acquisitions of South African. Startups for the tech by huge, huge foreign, not just investors, but foreign organizations. Foreign companies are like, oh my god, that is mind-blowing technology. That's South Africa. You have Kenya, where it's more of the social impact investor. Where um, they've kind of built the mindset of there's a lot of this social money and so I'm going to develop a platform that is has social impact, and I'll get money for that, and it's free money, because they're not asking for a percentage of my company; they're just giving me grants for me to, you know. Um, and wh- wh- what I'm hoping for Kenya is that those ideas that came in through social impacts, um, you know, helping the community and all that is important, but they'll tr- they'll start moving towards more commercially viable ideas and some of the technology is the same you just need to give it a different slant even just when you're pitching it and then you've got the money-making businesses and i think you know uh, nigeria was slower they're the, everybody's talking about nigeria today but you know a couple of years ago we were talking about kenya and south africa kenya and south africa like, you know like, as a twitter person <laughs> m- most of the articles i would tweet were about kenya Occasionally about South Africa. Now it's all about Nigeria, 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 Nigeria. The, the hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone, gone in to fund Nigeria tech. But Nigeria is because of the market size. you know. And so what, what people are looking for in Nigeria right now is not the innovation, not the technology, but the market size. Um, and so at one point, it would be really fantastic to get a combination of the three. Right. You get, you know, African bred technology that's innovative, that's creative, that people want to put money into that's commercially viable. You know, I think it's unfair that African technology uh, startups should be judged differently than Silicon Valley startups. It's OK for a Twitter or a Yahoo to lay off employees. Why shouldn't it be OK for us to lay off employees? I've experienced failure. And I'd like to talk about failure because it, it's part of the ecosystem. You know, it's part of the growth of the ecosystem. The fact that Iroko TV can say, yeah, we laid off employees because we had to. Because in, in, in all of this thing, it's not just about empowering people. It's about making money. And if we need to lay off people to make money, that's a reality. And so, yes, that's great because that shows growth. That shows that we're maturing, and that, that shows that, you know, we're businesses like any other entity anywhere in the world, and that we, w- like, like, let's be judged by the same criteria.
0: So are you telling me that everything you see elsewhere in the world when you're in the U.S., in terms of startup ecosystems, your exposure to what you see in, in Silicon Valley or else, anywhere else in the world is pretty comparable to what we see happening in, in tech startups, and we shouldn't be alarmed. In fact, we should be excited about it
1: yeah you know what I see a lot more failure in Silicon Valley than I do in Africa, but that's because we don't talk about failure um, I'm privileged enough to be on the board of um, salesforce.com or salesforce.org which is a foundation but on my board, there are a lot of Silicon Valley billionaires and um they talk frequently about failure and about and so i i, I, I live I live Silicon Valley startup and I live African startup, tech startup. And really, you know, we're at a disadvantage because we, we don't have, en français, in French, we say, on n'a pas le droit à l'erreur. We, we're not allowed to make mistakes. We have to make mistakes in order to grow. You know, what kind of ecosystem, what kind of business never makes mistakes? What kind of entrepreneur never makes mistakes? You know, how else do you become a better entrepreneur, If you don't learn from your own lessons... You can't always learn from the textbook. You know, sometimes it's experiencing... And we have our own lessons to learn... That are different from Silicon... They don't have our problems. Really? When I start talking about the issues that we have in Africa... At one point, I have to stop. Because they don't understand why we're still there. They would never survive our ecosystem. And so the fact that, yeah... We do make mistakes, and we do fail from time to time. That's a good thing.
0: We need to revise the PR uh, textbooks we're using.
1: Yeah, and I think it's starting. I only start this year. Before, we had some failures, but we wouldn't, nobody wanted to talk about them.
0: Would you, would, would you say Jason Njoku is a big part of, of contributing to this, this new era of what some might call over-disclosure?
1: No, I don't think it's over-disclosure, and I think he was kind of uh, forced into it. Because I've been through the PR ups and downs, you know, I, 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 as I mentioned to you when we were talking, I was on the, I made the Wall Street Journal in 2001, you know, I made uh, Forbes, made fortune 15 years ago. So, you know, I know that it doesn't generate revenue. And I, I, I see Jason right now as seeing as a CEO that that wants to generate revenue. And uh, being a CEO, being an entrepreneur, is is a very lonely feeling, because you really w- you have this choice. Often your choices are between bad and worst, right? And so you make a bad choice, but it's better than the alternative. But you're the the people that are judging you is like, okay, she re- she made a really bad choice. Well, I could have made a worse one, but I. And that I get, Jason, I get a lot of these entrepreneurs that have to make really, really horrible choices because the alternative is even worse. You know, you, you're, you've got to work for the survival of your company. And the survival of your company might mean that you're going to ruffle feathers, that people, you're going to have to lay off people that you care about very, very much. But the company...
0: That's your baby. Before we start winding down, I promised we'd come back to AppStech and you tell us a little more about what's what exciting things you, you, you want to tell us about. and uh, anything you have uh well Africa's is basically Africa's listening right now and what's AppStech up to and is there anything you wanna share?
1: You know what? I, I, I love my company because um as much as it's my baby as much as other people are taking care, I have like nannies. I should say I have nannies, right? I have a fantastic, fantastic team that has uh, carried us through the worst of times. And I never would have been able to do it without the same core team that's been there from day one and is still there today um, and is allowing me to to take trips all around the world, talk about Africa technology without any revenue going into AppStick. Actually, it's costing AppStick money for me to be out here. But, um, but This is
0: good for AppStick. Let's be honest. Come on now.
1: How is it good for AppStick? What, oh, co- si- what contracts have I signed because I'm out here? None. Zero.
0: Come on. Like, like you say, big picture, the ecosystem, um, our continent, the PR you're generating just by, by doing these things and, and sharing your insights. I mean, I'm the richer for just sitting here.
1: Well, you know, I'm glad that you are, and I'm glad that AppStack is a part of building and growing the ecosystem because I think that's part of our mission and our vision is to do that. But in reality, and this is one thing I learned from the, all the PR that I got early on in the company um, in the US because I was a black African woman entrepreneur building a multi bu- multi-million dollar business. And it was unusual at the time in the U.S. It still is, actually. Um, but none of that media generated revenue. And, you know, that's a message I have to all those tech entrepreneurs that are being featured in Forbes and in all those magazines and are top 10 in this and top 10 in that is that, in the end, it's all about making money and, and, and having a sustainable business. It's not about how great you are, but that being said, that press in those lonely moments. And I talked about the psychology of a CEO and how difficult it is and how lonely it is to be a CEO. Sometimes that press and that attention to your business is what will take you gives you the energy to get through it and go to the next day. Because you don't want to disappoint people. You know, you were top 10. You, you don't want, you, you, you created this image of success. And there are so many entrepreneurs that are looking up to you and are saying, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. And so you don't want to disappoint them. And so sometimes that, that's where that press helps. But it doesn't help in actual term in actual financial terms when i was still discovering what it was like to be an entrepreneur in africa the difficulty of it i used to blog and it's called diary of an Afri- diary of an african entrepreneur it's kind of anonymous because i don't talk about what country i'm in or i don't talk about i don't give the name of my company or the names of the customers that but it really relates more the experience of what it really is like and at at first i was so disappointed in what i'd found on the continent that you know i i I, my, my tagline was american dream african nightmare and as i've evolved it's more american dream african reality it's not necessarily a nightmare. It's what you make of it. And um, I've decided that, you know, my experience, um, bad, good, great, I'm going to share and I want to help that experience to help other entrepreneurs grow, develop, and to build the, that ecosystem. And so, yeah, if I would wanted to just make money, I would have stayed in the U.S.
0: Uh, downhill from here, um, just a few questions just to unwind. What do you do to relax?
1: My glass of champagne.
0: Okay, I wanted to see if you're going to keep it consistent.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know what? It's so funny because I I I'm, I'm a geek, and you know I I I you saw what I read very deep, you know, spiritual stuff. But I watch stuff that's mindless as much as possible, like the series, like Real Housewives stuff.
0: What are you watching right now? That's serious. That's my next question. I was I was actually going to ask you specifically. What's uh, you know is it? Have you seen a good movie lately? But clearly you're a series girl.
1: Yeah. Well, I fall. I like. I went to the movies, and I, we don't have a movie theater in Cameroon. So the only time I get a chance to go to the movie theater is in, when I'm in the U.S. And I went to a movie recently, and I slept through it, and so I can't tell you anything about it. But I do watch series, and I watch Good Wife. There's a new one called Quantico that I like. oh,
0: Qu- I've seen Quantico. Yeah. Uh, um, I do you watch? Do you watch um, uh, Homeland?
1: Yes, I watch Homeland, How to Get Away with Murder, but I have to binge watch because I have very little time. And so, when I get on a plane, I'll you know connect and and start watching and try to catch up on some of the stuff. But, and I do watch like real stupid stuff like Real Housewives, and people are like. You can't watch that. And I remember when it first started coming on, I'm like, that is the worst stuff. I'm like kind of the
0: dankest.
1: <laughs> but, you know, when you've had really a really rough day or a rough month, and I've had so many of those. Um, they, 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 it was like it's so mindless. It's pure nonsense that you'd never get attached to. And it takes you away. And yeah, so I watch that stuff, too.
0: Well, heads up, everybody. Um, I've gone through some quick, uh, quick fire questions uh, with Rebecca, uh, her top 10. Find that on our Facebook, our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. A lot more uh, fun stuff you probably wouldn't expect her to, to be into or not into um, on her top 10. You can look out for that. Final question for you, though, Rebecca. Is there a question uh, I didn't ask that you wish I had?
1: Oh no, you can't do that to me <laughs> Let me think Maybe too deep Maybe why Why? Given everything that I've gone through I'm still in it
0: Given everything you've gone through Why do you stick with it?
1: That's where my heart is That's where my soul is you know, And I really see the difference I see the transformation I see how African technology has evolved And has moved forward And I, I almost feel like I can, I can still contribute to that and because of that, I'm still involved, and I'll keep, keep doing it until the end of day, right?
0: Oh, wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was, that is, and will continue to be, Rebecca Inonchong right here on African Tech Conversations. Thank you so much for joining me. You rock.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love you guys. You're such an inspiration, and I hope everybody subscribes to the podcast because it makes it so much easier. You don't have to think about when it's coming on next, just make sure you just hit subscribe iTunes.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening over and out. We'd like to thank audible.com for sponsoring this week's episode of African Tech Conversations. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player, including my recommendation, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial right now at audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.